passage this morning, uh, we turn once again to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find Mark 9 on page 1005, page 1005. Last week, we looked uh, really at a verse that connects or a section that connects with a little bit of what we're going to see this morning, and that is the divide or the fight that took place among the disciples of Jesus. You notice in verses 33 through 37, they were fighting with one another over who was the greatest. And we saw last week, Jesus had to correct them that it wasn't about themselves, it was about God. We noted that sin makes us all narcissistic. Sin is an inward looking at oneself, serving oneself, when we were created to serve the true and living God. And that's exactly what the gospel is all about, Jesus saving us from ourself and from our self-worship. We're going to pick up a little bit with this now as the disciples kind of have a pride mentality with their own group, but then we get into a section which uh, no doubt many of us, if not all of us, have been uh, familiar with. Jesus is warning about the danger of sin. In fact, we're about to read a very weighty passage which warns us about the eternal consequences of our sin. And so, with that in mind, let's read the very words of our God, beginning at verse 38 of Romans or Mark 9. There we read the following. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. For if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. And there ends the reading of God's holy word. And as always, we are dependent on God the Holy Spirit now to bless the preached word. Let's pray for the Spirit's blessing. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, this morning we have assembled in your presence to not be addressed by a mere man, not to be spoken to by a fellow sinful man, but to be spoken to by you. Father, it is your word that our souls need. It is your word that our hearts stand in need of this morning. So Father, bless us now as you've promised to do. Bless us with the presence of your Spirit, that he would bless him who speaks. 
Father, we pray that the words spoken now would not be his own, but be, would be the words that you would have spoken from your word. Father, we pray especially as we're about to deal with a very weighty passage. Father, we pray that we would not approach the topic of hell glibly. But Father, we pray, we pray that you would also help us approach this topic now with faith and reverence and fear. So to that end, Father, bless us now in these moments that we have under your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, I've heard from military people or from those who've served in the military or those who've planned wars and those who have to fight in wars that one of the most difficult part of warfare is having to distinguish between friend and foe. And I suppose it's kind of common sense, isn't it? Even as you sit here, you likely have not fought in a war, but that makes sense. When you take a gun in hand or when you have weapons in hand and you are to go against an army, you have to, in a moment's notice, discern whether that person on the other end of the field is a friend or a foe. In fact, I believe they call this target discrimination. They train their soldiers well to discriminate between friend and foe because really the the victory of the battle hinges on this. For example, if the person on the other end of the field is a friend and you take their life, not only is that a tragic waste of a human life, but also it could compromise the end of the battle. You need to discern who's a friend and an ally with you. But also, you need to discriminate, discern who is an enemy. Because if you let an enemy get too close, if you allow an enemy within the gates, they will kill you and destroy you and your men. Target discrimination is essential in warfare. And I think in many ways, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us this morning about the spiritual battle of the Christian life. We need to have discernment. We need to have target discrimination with how we conduct our life. We need to be able to, in other words, discern who's a friend, who's a fellow believer, who can we have unity and fellowship with, and who and what we must war against with all our life. In this passage, Jesus, again, is picking up the topic of pride. He's picking up the topic of self-glory, and he's reminding us once again this morning, life is not about you, it's not about me, it's about God's kingdom, it's about God's mission, and therefore, we need to know who's on mission with us and who's on mission against us. Who is our friend and who is our foe? We're reminded this morning that true Christian unity is found throughout the globe this morning. And the warning of the text is that we must never exclude a fellow brother or sister because of pride. But at the same token, Christian unity cannot be found with those who promote sin and wrong doctrine because they are promoting things that are contrary to God's kingdom. We must discern between friend and foe in our Christian life. And ultimately, the reason for all of this is towards the end of the passage, because hell is real And it could not get any more serious than the topic of eternal judgment. We need to discriminate between friend and foe for that reason. So with that in mind, here's the theme that with God's help, I hope to show you this morning. We learn that true Christian unity is found in serving Christ and killing sin. True Christian unity is found in serving Christ and killing sin. Three points to get at that. First of all, we need to know unity prescribed. The unity that is prescribed for the church of Jesus Christ by Christ himself. Secondly, unity prohibited. Where does unity end? Where must we stop the gap? 
with those whom we cannot have unity with. And then thirdly, unity purified. I'll explain more when we get there. That was the most difficult part of the passage this week. But unity purified through a sanctified life. So those three points, unity prescribed, unity prohibited, and then unity purified. First of all, note with me now, unity prescribed. And in many ways, we could have taken the passage here, we could have talked about it last week. In fact, I thought very hard about it, but for the sake of time, I did not, because the theme here is the same of self-glory. Only in this case, it's self-glory in the group that you're associated with. Notice the situation here in verse 38. John, one of the disciples, said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, likely, Jesus has just been talking about self-glory, self-exaltation, and perhaps John is maybe confessing here a little bit. It's very possible that John's heart was cut a little bit, and he wanted to share what the disciples had just recently done with someone casting out a demon. Uh, Whatever the case may be, you notice that John, speaking on behalf of the other disciples, found someone out and about casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, we need to note a couple of details about this. First of all, you notice that whoever this person was, was not one of the twelve disciples. He was a believer. You notice that he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. This man had a level of faith. He apparently had followed Jesus enough to see Jesus cast out demons, perhaps witness the disciples do this. But here the disciples show up, and here's this unnamed man whom is not a part of their crew, and they see him casting out a demon, and they stop him. They actually rebuke him. They put up their hands and say, whoa, 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 not so fast. You can't do this. You're not a part of the group. And that's an important thing to note here, is that he was using Jesus' name, and despite that, they rebuked him, and they stopped him. Now, you notice your text, this is so important to get, why did they rebuke him? What were they jealous for? What was their concern with this scene? Well, you notice, he was not following who? Us. They were concerned about this. Whoa, he's taking glory from us. We're the 12 disciples. We're the ones who were picked by Jesus. We're the ones who've been following him all of these years. We're the ones whom he sent out two by two. This is not just given to anybody. This is given to us. And so they rebuke him, and they try to stop him from casting out the demons. Now, likely there's a couple of background details here that can add to this. Uh, Consider for a moment that in chapter 9, we saw a couple of the disciples unable to drive out a demon. It's very possible there was a hint of jealousy here. Just a little while earlier, they had a demon-possessed boy in their presence. They could not drive out the demon. And now here's this unnamed guy driving out demons. Perhaps they were just a little bit jaded that he was doing something that they just recently could not do. It's possible. The other thing to consider for a moment is the heartlessness of this rebuke. John and the other disciples have no care for the demon-possessed person. They have no concern about the the demonic influence in this world on God's creation. They have no compassion, but rather, they're filled with pride. It's about them. It's about their esteem. It's about their closeness with Jesus. It's their self-glory. And again, Jesus has to correct them. Look at verse 39. What does Jesus say to them? But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able 
will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And notice, Jesus does not commend them. He doesn't just kind of ignore this. No, he stops in a moment and he kind of rebukes the disciples. No, 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 you did wrong there. Do not stop this person because he is doing it in my name. Do not stop this person because he has seen my power in him. Do not stop this person because at this time in history, demonic possession in my name is being driven out. He who is not against us is for us. What's the point? Jesus says, it's not about you and your association. It's not about your identity as a disciple. It's about me. It's about my kingdom. It's about my mission and my purpose that I have come to do. Jesus is reminding them that he has come in order to drive out the remainder of Satan, to drive them out and to go to the cross. Now, a couple of details here. The reason, Jesus says, is one who is trusting Christ enough, who does this, will not so easily walk away. Jesus says this because the man is demonstrating a level of faith, and Jesus is saying that faith will grow, allow him to continue to do this. And whoever's not against us is for us. We have unity with him, and therefore we are to join with him. Again, the point is this. It's not about you as a group. It's not about your pride in being the 12 disciples. It's about my kingdom. It's about those who have joined with us in unity in the kingdom of Christ that I have come. Christ has come to save the lost. He's come to defeat the kingdom of Satan on the cross. And those who are with him, whether they're part of the disciples or not, we have unity with. The point is, the disciples have more concern about their pride and image than the kingdom of God. So Jesus rebukes them. And again, look at verse 41 as Jesus puts a finer edge on this. He says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to, water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, Jesus is saying, going on from here on out, things are going to change. The church is going to expand, and this is what I want to tell you. You're going to have to have unity with others. You're going to have unity with others. And listen, if someone gives you a cup of water because you belong to me and they also belong to me, they will by no means lose the reward of which they've earned through me or gained from me that is eternal life. In other words, what is Jesus saying? Have unity with fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Part of the imagery here is of a servant bringing a cup of water to a guest. Uh, in this day and age, in the, the climate they were in, if you had a guest enter your home, it was the basic level of hospitality to offer that person a cup of water as soon as they come in your house. And Jesus is saying, if someone does that for you like a servant, if someone humbles himself and gives you a cup of water simply because you are a follower of me and they follow me as well, they will by no means lose a reward because that's an act of faith of serving one another. Here is Jesus' point. It's not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about our denomination. It's about the kingdom of Christ of which every believer serves. There's a level of unity and love that the church of Jesus Christ experiences all throughout the world. In fact, we've, we've noted this numerous times. A number of you have traveled around the world. You've visited other churches, even with different language barriers. But isn't it true that when you visit a fellow brother or sister, or a fellow church of brothers and sisters, there's this unity of love that we share. Why? Because we have the same Savior who died for our sins. 
We're filled with the same Spirit. And as we serve one another, we do so out of a response and acknowledgement that we are on mission together. There's a unity of the church universal wherever she may be found. And here Christ says, this is the point. It's about my kingdom. It's about my church. And you all have a role to play. And you are to have unity with one another in this mission that I have sent you on. Here's the point. John and the disciples were exalting themselves and not Christ. The goal is to serve Christ and his kingdom together as the church of Jesus Christ. And as I studied on it this past week, numerous commentaries and numerous sermons that I listened to on this noted that pride in church life is so easy, isn't it? That we can have pride in our denomination. We can have pride in our individual congregation. What Jesus is warning us here is be very careful. It is not about what you make of yourself in New Haven, Vermont. It's about you exalting the wonders of the gospel where you are found. It is about uniting with fellow brothers and sisters who may have slight differences, but yet still follow Christ and worshiping me together because of the church of Jesus Christ. It's about the kingdom of God. It's not about the kingdom of our own making. You see, pride can so easily crop up when we serve in the church, isn't it true? That we have things right, we do things better, us, us, us. And Jesus says, get your eyes off yourself. What is the purpose of the church? It is advancement or being used by Christ to advance his kingdom and to serve him. To have unity as brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the first point, unity prescribed by our Savior. Secondly, though... Unity prohibited. Now, you may say at the end of that, well, Jesus seems to have the door wide open, that we can just associate with everyone and have unity with everyone. And now Jesus says, wait a minute. There is those of whom you cannot have unity with because they do not know the gospel. Unity prohibited. Who are those whom we are not to have unity with? Well, look at verse 42 to begin. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus suddenly gets very serious, very uh, somber with the seriousness of the example here. And Jesus says, listen, you are to have unity. You are to have love with fellow believers who are in the kingdom and are serving me. But listen, whoever would lead a little one astray It would be better if they were just cast and drowned into the sea. A couple of things here. Who does he mean by the little ones here? Well, he he likely refers to the child that we saw last week that he took by himself and carried it or picked up and put in his lap. It's the imagery of a little one, but the imagery here is of someone who's weak in faith, someone who's a baby believer, someone who's just starting starting out and does not have all the discernment as an experienced believer. And here Jesus says, listen... If anyone who claims my name, if any teacher in the church would teach a false doctrine or teach a permissiveness to sin that would lead this new Christian to walk into a life of sin, listen to me, if someone were to do that, the outcome would be better for them rather to do that than have a millstone tied around his neck and to be cast into the deepest sea. Actually, in the Greek, it's literally a millstone of a donkey. Uh, In this day and age, they would grind their grain on a millstone. A donkey would walk in a turn or in a, a, a circle, and as he did so, he would turn two stones on one another, and this stone was something that a single person 
could not lift. You see, Jesus is giving a big point here. He's saying if you want to teach false doctrine, if you want to teach a permissiveness to sin of what God said is wrong and condone that so that someone walks into a life of sin, listen to me. Things are so serious in this realm, it would be better that you be drowned in that degree than to teach a little one to go astray. You know, actually, what does James chapter 3 say? We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the evening Bible study. James actually said, there should be very few of you brothers who should, should become teachers. Why? Because teachers and preachers who teach the gospel will be judged with a greater severity. Why? Because to get it wrong leads to eternal consequences. See, that's what Jesus is saying. Have unity with brothers and sisters who know the gospel, teach right doctrine, but you have no unity with those who have a false doctrine. If there's a doctrine that would leave we Christians astray, you cannot have unity with them. You cannot have unity with people who, who teach that certain sin or that sin is permissive. If God says this is a sin, you cannot ignore it. It will lead people astray. You get his point. We cannot have unity with those who would lead a weak believer astray, whether it's false doctrine or those who condone sin. So that is the first thing we note here. Unity is prohibited with anyone who would lead people astray in sin. But notice he goes on. Now it's also about what's prohibited is unity with our own sin. Look at verse 43. It says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Again, Jesus is getting very serious. It's not just about false teachers who teach these things. It's also about our own conduct in life. Jesus is saying, have unity with fellow brothers and sisters, but you are not to have unity with sin. You are to make war against your own sin. You are to make war against the old man that's still clinging to you. You are to make war against sin reigning in your heart and your life. You are to have all-out war in all of your being against your own walk that would contradict faithfulness in God. Now you notice, he says here to his disciples that they must have such an animosity towards sin, that they must root it out of their own life. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking with hyperbole here. He is not saying to take a literal saw and cut off your hand. He's not taking, telling you to take a knife and gouge out your eyes, but here's what he is saying. You are to take your own personal sin so seriously that you would be willing to do anything necessary to stop yourself from engaging in sin that God is offended with. I trust you get the point. Jesus is saying sin is so serious that you must go to any extent necessary to root it out of your life. Sin with hands and with feet and eyes. The imagery here is sin that's in the heart that's acted out in our life. Sin that we'd conduct with our hands or with our eyes or our feet. Jesus says sin that you practice in your life flows out of your heart and therefore you must take every means possible to restrain your conduct, to not engage in sin. Here's the point. Jesus is making so very clear this morning. Sin is so grievous. Sin is so dangerous that our spiritual warfare begins with ourselves. 
And I think that's noteworthy this morning, isn't it? You know, isn't it so easy to point the finger at other people? Isn't it so easy to point our finger at the world and say, they got it all wrong, they're causing all these problems, they're the problem, what's wrong with life? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, we can address sin in the world. Yes, we, we can do that, but we need to have a proper angle on that. But listen, have you pointed the finger at yourself first? Before you cast yourself or before you look at the sin of those in the world, are you first looking at the sin in your own life? Remember what Jesus says, before you take the log out of your brother's eye, or before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye, what must you do first? You need to take the log out of your own eye, right? You must not be a hypocrite. Once you get the log out of your own eye, then you must deal with the sin in your brother's eye. We must not ignore sin in one another's lives, but you must deal with your own sin before you correct a brother in their sin. Again, here's Jesus' point. Take sin this seriously. And the other thing to note here about why this is prohibited, notice the language here of the consequence of sin. Now, before I get into this, I just want to make a note. When I was in seminary, I had a seminary professor who warned us. He said, don't you ever preach a sermon, men. Don't ever talk about hell glibly. He said, don't ever talk about hell in a way that you almost are casual about it. Listen, whenever you are teaching about hell, make sure the tone is appropriate because we're talking about something that's of eternal significance here. These are the very words of our Savior. What does Jesus say are the consequences of living a life of sin? Well, notice the language. He says, those who engage in this without repentance will go to hell, Gehenna in the Greek. And how does he describe hell? It is a place of unquenchable fire. Jesus is saying that is the outcome of sin. To those who do not repent of sin, to those who do not turn to me in repentance and cling to me by faith, what is the horrific outcome of those who die in their sin. Listen to the text this morning. This is not just anyone saying this. This is your Savior this morning. This is Jesus saying this. What is the end result for those who die apart from Him? Horribly, horrifically, but unequivocally, the truth this morning is there is a literal place of hell for those who are rebellious against God will go. And listen, not temporarily, not, not for just a time, but notice the text. It's an unquenchable fire. Jesus is reminding us that sin is against a holy, infinite, and eternal God. That is not something trivial. It is eternal in its scope. And Jesus says, this is why you must take sin seriously. This is why you cannot have unity with heretics. This is why you cannot have unity with those who condone sin, because hell is on the other side of life. And notice as well, look at verse 48. How does our Savior remind us of this? Verse 48 he gives this language that actually comes from Isaiah 66. Speaking of hell and the torment there, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Oh, beloved, this morning, do you read the text? Jesus is telling us, yes, sin is that grave. Sin results in eternal condemnation of where those who go there, who reject the offer of grace, who are living in rebellion to God without repentance. It's eternal, unending torment in the justice of God. You know, I've heard some people say that hell is the absence of God. That's not true. Hell is the presence of God. It's the presence of His wrath, you see. And you see, listen, this is what our Savior is telling us this morning. You know, many people and I understand it. Preaching about hell is one of the worst sermons or one of the sermons I do not like to preach on. 
And there are many pastors, there's many people who want to excuse this and try to underplay this, but we do people no good if we do not be honest. We're not honest with what Christ says. Hell is real, and God sends people there who are not repentant of their sins. This morning, we are reminded with a weighty reality that sin brings about an eternal guilt. Sin brings about an eternal judgment for soul and body. We are reminded this morning there is a place where people will go for all eternity to bear the just penalty for their sin against a holy God. This morning, here's the point. We cannot have unity with false doctrine. We cannot have unity with those who condone sin because hell is real and we must take it that seriously. We must not compromise on sin. We must not compromise for the sake of getting along just to go along, or go along rather to get along. We must love people enough to tell them what Jesus tells them, to repent and to believe. And even more than that, part of the context going on here is conducting ourselves as disciples, as witnesses. Part of the reason we're called to root out sin in our own life is because little believers are watching us. You kind of see the point here. What Jesus is saying is not, not only is it to wrong to, better to be cast into the sea with a millstone if you teach something wrong, but if you live something wrong, if you live like a hypocrite before little ones and you lead them astray by how you're living in unrepentance, be warned to live and not restrain your life, to live like a hypocrite in the presence of other believers, weak believers, and to lead them astray by joining with your own unrepentant sin is a serious consequence. We are reminded that to live a life of hypocrisy before others can lead them astray. Here's the point this morning. Hell is real, and we are to take it with all the seriousness that Jesus warns us about. But then finally, thirdly, we have one more section to deal with, and this is the most confusing section. Thirdly, Jesus ends by describing unity purified. Unity purified purified. He has two statements here about salt and fire in light of what he just said about hell. First of all, notice purified through salted fire. Look at verse 49. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, if you have your text open, if you have your pew Bible open, you'll notice there is a, a footnote there. There's a textual variant that where very likely someone has added a few words to this in other translations, but they likely added it because they wanted to clarify it. What in the world does Jesus mean by everyone will be salted with fire? Now, if you have a study Bible, no doubt there's a large note there, as there should be, because there's a, no, a number of things to note here. It's a very bizarre passage, but almost certainly the first thing we can note here is Jesus is making an allusion to Leviticus 2, verse 14. Uh, in Leviticus, in there, God is prescribing through Moses how you're to offer numerous sacrifices, and in chapter 2, God actually says, when you bring this type of sacrifice, you're to salt it with fire. And in that context, the salt represents the eternal covenant, the preserving covenant that will follow that sacrifice. In other words, the point of that is this sacrifice will deal with the ongoing sin or the eternal sin and the eternal covenant that God's promised as they offer in faith. Now you'd say, well, what does that have to do with what Jesus is saying? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is that everyone refers to all faithful disciples. Everyone who is following Christ, everyone who's warring against their own sin by cutting off their hands or doing the extreme work of fighting sin, 
Everyone who is striving to serve in unity, faithful believers in this battle against sin, I think what he's getting at is they'll be salted with fire. In other words, that the life of sin, the battle with sin is hard. In fact, Peter will say that it's through fiery trials that we're all sanctified. Likely that's imagery here. Jesus is saying, as my disciples, as you strive towards unity, as you strive to get along, as you strive against sin, it's going to be costly. It's going to be painful to say no to sin. It's going to be difficult to say no to things that your sinful flesh will want. But as you strive to do this, as you press on, you're being sanctified and purified like a living sacrifice. In many ways, you remember what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. That you and I as redeemed believers are to offer up our bodies as what? A living sacrifice of praise. That's likely what Jesus is saying here. You're to offer up your lives as living sacrifice of praise that as you dedicate your life to me, you're salted with fire as you serve me, I'm purifying you. I'm sanctifying you. I'm making you more holy. As you say no to what your hand would want to do, say no to what your eye would want to see, say no to your feet with where they would want to go, I'm sanctifying you. I will work in your life. I really think that is what Jesus is getting at. Fiery trials that will purge his people in this life, that we will grow in holiness as we walk with him. It's really the opposite of hell, isn't it? He described hell as eternal fire, which is justice against unrepented sin, but for believers, there's a fire of purification, not a fire of judgment. We cannot be judged because Christ was judged for us, whether we're being purified as a living sacrifice. Then he goes on, he brings up the salt imagery once again. Look at verse 50. He says, we're to be salty Christians. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is likely a reference to Mark or Matthew chapter 5, where we're told to be salt and light in this world. What, what is salt for? Well, salt is for preserving things. In this day and age especially, salt was the only way you kept meat from rotting. You would take meat and you would spread salt over it. You could store salt in barrels and it would keep it from rotting. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You're to be salty Christians because as you live in a sin-filled world, a depraved and rotting world, you, believer, are that which preserves them from rottenness. You're to be like salt Christian as you go about your work week. You're to be like salt as you engage with unbelievers. You're to be like salt in the context and the culture they put you in, that where people are engaging in sin, you Christians are to live such different lives that you will be a persevering in a purifying effect in the culture that I put you in. You see the point? You are to be salt and light. You're to have purified lives in such a way that worldly people will see a difference in you and that your difference will make an effect in the lives of those who engage with you. The imagery here is of fighting against personal sin, putting off sin in such a way that we can be salt to those in the world around us. And notice this, it's kind of an interesting imagery here. He's, he gives a warning of losing saltiness. Now, I don't know if there's a way to lose saltiness, but Jesus gives this imagery of how we can lose saltiness. Now, you'd ask the question, okay, Jesus, I'm to be salt, I'm to, purify, I'm to be purified by your grace and to strive for holiness, but how could I lose saltiness? I think this is what Jesus would say. 
you lose saltiness when you act and live like the world. When you don't live differently, when you're not sanctifying yourself, when you're not denying yourself as we saw from chapter 8, when you're living like the world and there's no difference between you, you lose the purifying effect on unbelievers that you would have if you lived differently. And you notice, here's the connecting point to the whole uh, couple of chapters that we saw last week and this week. We are to be salty Christians because as we sanctify ourselves, what's the result in the church? Look at your text again. The result is to be at peace with one another. Christ says, I know that you have pride in your hearts. I know that you have vain glory in your hearts. I know that my church is going to be filled with people who are trying to pump themselves up. But as you sanctify yourself, as you say no to yourself, as you deny yourself, as you grow to be salt and light, you will have peace in the church. In other words, that's the connecting point. To get rid of your pride, to get rid of your vain glory, is to deny yourself and say no to yourself. And as you and I do that, we have a purifying, salty effect in the life of the church that when you gather here every Sunday, there's a difference found in the walls of this church because God is doing a difference in our lives. That's the point. We're being changed to be different, to serve Christ, and in that, there's peace in the life of the church. And in many ways, I think this also is a connecting point to the original readers. Remember that Mark wrote this almost certainly to persecuted Christians in Rome who are likely meeting in the catacombs, in the tunnels, under the streets because they're being persecuted. Imagine the comfort this would have been to them. Someone says, if Jesus is speaking the word, I see what you're going through. I know your friends have left you. I know your family has forsaken you. I know that you're meeting in tunnels just because you're going to be persecuted for me. But, but look at what I'm doing in your life. I'm salting you. I'm purifying you. I'm doing such a work through the trials in your life that I'm making you different, Christian. They would have found comfort in this. Here's the point. We're called to be living sacrifices of praise to God, to be different because He has purchased us to that end. And you see, that's exactly where we find the gospel this morning because you and I are not enough to do this. The command meets us at the foot of the cross this morning that we are to be different, that we are to say no to ourselves because Christ died for you and I and for hands and our feet and our eyes. Believer this morning, what did Jesus do for you on the cross of Calvary? In the cross of Calvary, the hands of Jesus, which committed no sin, were nailed to the cross for your hands and my hands, which committed sin. The body of Jesus, which never engaged in any sinful thought, any sinful act, was placed upon the cross. It was nailed to the cross, and on that cross, the sinless Son was cursed and endured nothing less than hell. See, that's what Jesus did for His people on the cross of Calvary. The sinless son was placed there so you and I would not be there. On the cross, it became dark. Why? Because God was telling you and I that Christ was in hell at that moment. That he was being forsaken in that moment. That all of the wrath of the Father, all of the curse of our sin was laid upon him so that Christ the Son would bear that in our place. Do you know him this morning? It is that, is that your hope this morning of coming here this morning knowing I am a sinner my hands, my eyes, my feet have all done things that deserve eternal hell, but Christ has redeemed me. Oh, there is no greater joy than knowing that. Christ has hung there for you, believer, that you will not be cursed for what you did, but be welcomed by a Father who sent His Son to die for you. That is the gospel. And God reminds us in this that that is why the gospel is the greatest news. You know, the gospel is not that Jesus makes your life better. Now, that 
loving Christ does that. The gospel is that he saved you from hell. You know, if you want to ask one of the reasons why we must never negotiate on how bold we are and clear we are in hell, it's because the gospel is at stake. If you ignore hell and downplay hell, Christ means nothing. But when you understand it's eternal condemnation that he saved you from, oh, he is the greatest treasure of your life. Because that's what the cross is all about. The gospel is the greatest news. So, in conclusion this morning, two things that I want to briefly leave you with. Really, the two points of the text. First of all, we as Christians learn this morning that we are to strive for unity and peace with other believers. Now, that will look differently wherever you are found, but we're reminded this morning that your job, my job, is not to make New Haven URC, if you're a member here, great. Our job as Christians is to make Christ glorious to the nations. We're to join with fellow brothers and sisters who, who may have differences in small matters on this, and we're to rejoice when their churches grow. We're to to gather together for prayer meetings. We're to gather together with them for events and conferences. By the way, it's one of the reasons I love our weekly fall Reformation conference. We gather together with mostly Baptist brothers and sisters, and I love it. We differ on baptism, and when you go to our meetings, we, we love to rib one another about it. But we serve the same Savior. We have unity in the gospel with one another. And therefore, we also need to make sure we're not being unified with false teachers, false doctrine, we must guard against wolves in the church. Why? Because the souls of our children are at stake, and eternity is serious. Unity, strive for unity with those who love the gospel, have the gospel, and guard against false teaching in the church. That's the first thing, loving Christ and serving His kingdom above all. And then secondly, and I, I'll be honest with you, I did not know how to bring this up. I want to be very careful here. Mostly this is just my notes in, in thinking yesterday in my study, but what I took away from the text is this, for Andrew Knott's application, it teaches me, and likely you this morning, that we need to take hell seriously. Now again, I want to be very careful here, because I know some of you have very soft hearts, and I don't want to crush you this morning, but I do want to ask the question, let me ask you this, do you and I really take hell seriously? Do we? Do I? Do I really take hell this seriously, that there is eternal judgment that awaits people who I know do not know Christ? Do I take this seriously? Do I really believe it? And maybe put it this way, do you, do I really fear hell for others? And as I thought on that this week, I, I asked myself, do I really fear hell for those unbelievers that I know? And part of the guilt and part of the conviction that I feel even in this moment is all too often, no, all too often, it's the inconvenience of sharing the gospel, the fear of man that overwhelms me with rather than love and fear for their eternal good. May I be corrected in that and love others better. And even in my parenting, let me ask you this, how would the reality of hell affect your parenting? Again, I want to be so sensitive here. I want to be so careful. Hear me on this. But are you discipling your children with the reality that one day they will die and stand before the judgment throne of God? Children present this morning, with all pastoral love, do you know that this morning? And do you know that there's a Savior who loves you so much, He endured hell in your place? May we not withhold that from our children. With all the love and honesty, warn them, but point them to Christ and the love of Christ. And I'll ask you this as well as I ask myself, and this is in closing, do you really take hell seriously? Do I take hell seriously in how you fight sin in your life? Are you fighting sin with all vigilance, realizing the seriousness to which Jesus has said? 
May God give us grace to help us do these things. May He help us see this in our lives. May we love others enough to warn them of this and point them to the Savior. May we have proper target discrimination in this life as we go about it. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, what a sobering passage this morning. Father, we pray that those present would hear it in a way that is fitting. Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning, humble us this morning, and as we leave here this morning, may our hearts be filled with love for our Savior. We ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen.